0: Hey, everyone, it's David Warrench. Welcome again, and thanks for listening to the Authentic Dad podcast today. Dr. Martin Schuster joins us. Dr. Schuster is a dad. He's also a philosophy professor, and we have a very interesting and wide-ranging conversation about philosophy, and more specifically, the philosophy of humor, the importance of imagination, and overall, why philosophy matters, especially in this day and age. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I hope you reach out. Further dot Further.coach is my website. Love to hear your feedback. Please consider a five-star review. If you want support, I support dads. We try to inspire and coach them into living a life that is on their terms and help them flourish and optimize. See you on the other side. Okay, I'm here with Martin Schuster. Martin. Dr. Martin Schuster. He's an associate professor of philosophy at Goucher College, where he also holds the professorship of Judaic Studies and Justice, and where he directs the Center for Geographies of Justice. He's a specialist in ethics, political philosophy, aesthetics, and philosophy of religion, and he has fellowships or received grants from the Templeton Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, and the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum In addition to many essays and articles, he's the author of three academic books, and by the way, if I'm pronouncing any of this wrong, you can correct me, Uh, Autonomy After Auschwitz, Adorno, German Idolism and Modernity, New Television, the Aesthetics and Politics of a Genre, and How to Measure a World, a Philosophy of Judaism, and in addition to his academic work, he's published in popular venues like The Forward, the LA Review of Books, Public Seminar, and others, and his research and teaching is inter- disciplinary ranging from philosophy of humor which I would love to talk about to genocide studies and I think most importantly I I believe we went to middle school together so thank you so much for doing this I really appreciate it.
1: Hey my pleasure thanks for having me.
0: Quite a resume so um, you know I moonlight as a philosopher but I'm not a professional one so if if (laughs) you could just um, tell me I, I think we probably lost track when we were like in seventh grade like I want to hear how, you know, philosophy, becoming a PhD in philosophy and professor, I believe is a very arduous path. So not for the faint of heart. So how did this come about? Like, let me just hear your story, how you landed that way.
1: Sure. Um, so it, uh, I would say sort of by accident, um, I, I don't know if you knew this when we went to middle school together, but I'm technically a, a first generation college student. So my parents um, and I immigrated here from the former Soviet Union, And uh, my parents didn't go to college here. And so I had no idea about careers like professor that wasn't even on my radar. Um, And I came in as an undergrad. I was going to be a computer science major, which I did for a whole year. And then one day I was sitting there looking for a semicolon for Mm -hmm. like six hours in my Mm -hmm. code. And it was before like now code is all multicolored and you don't have to do this, but I spent like six hours doing this. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this for the rest of my life. And I had, just taking like a, a philosophy of religion class actually that I really enjoyed, and I just ended up going to that professor and said, "Look, uh, you know, I'm thinking of uh, like dropping this computer science, um, computer science major. Um, like, can you major in philosophy?" And he was like, "Yeah, you can major in philosophy." I said, like, well, what, what do you do with that exactly?"
2: Yeah. And he's
1: like, "Well, you know, you can become a professor like me." And I was like, "Oh, really?" Uh, I had no idea that you could do that. So he sort of he said, Look, if you want to be a professor, like this is what you need to do and I sort of uh listened to him and did it and then things just sort of fell into place. Um, you know, I, I would say it was mostly by chance and by luck. I, I feel like uh I got into graduate school which I never expected would happen and uh and then things just sort of progressed like that. But uh yeah, if you would have if you would have asked me middle school or high school or even you know, first year of college, it's it's definitely not something that was on my radar. I would have ever anticipated doing.
0: And not that I'm recommending this, but I believe you can. Oh, many philosophy majors become attorneys as well. But I, but I wouldn't yeah, recommend. Yeah, I it. mean, it's uh, <laughs>
1: not not to not to glorify the major, um, but yeah, I mean, I think you know when I when I sell the major to folks that are interested in law school, I always tell them that philosophy majors are some of the highest scoring LSAT um, recipients. So. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think actually it's a misnomer that you can't do things with philosophy. Um, I think what's interesting, again, not to get into my sort of philosophy mode too much, but uh, I mean, philosophy majors actually over the course of a lifetime, um, have very high, like uh, bottom lines. I mean, they're good earners. And I think that's because mm-hmm. a lot of them end up starting businesses and doing creative things. And they're very, just very good at, at thinking and analyzing things. And so they're usually successful at whatever they do. Um, yeah, I mean, when I was uh when I was in graduate school, I remember play, like firms like McKinsey and stuff like this would sometimes only exclusively recruit philosophy majors.
0: Yeah, but I love what, what about you is that you're actually doing philosophy as a career rather than I'm going to study this and then you know work in a think tank or something else. Um, yeah, no, I
1: feel I feel very lucky. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much you or or the people listening know about the academic job market but the academic job market is just like miserable I mean in every field but especially in things like philosophy and
2: huh.
1: and history and literature um so you could you could apply for a job in in like North or South Dakota and mm-hmm. again I don't necessarily have anything against North or South Dakota but right. not the most popular places and um and like an entry level job will get 800 applications
0: yeah. easily Super competitive. It's, there's probably what one job, and um, the other. You know, the other thing I want to ask you. I looked into it when I was in college because I was really into the philosophy. Did you? Did you have to learn a different language too? Did you learn German or become fluent in the? I
1: did. Else? I learned uh, German and then French and then I actually, um, I learned Arabic at a certain point because I was, was really interested in, in uh, this medieval philosopher named Maimonides who, uh mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who who wrote everything. I You've only heard found of him? this after I, <laughs> right. So I, I only found this out after I studied uh, Arabic for a couple of years, but he wrote everything in Arabic, but he wrote it in what's called Judeo-Arabic, which is basically he was Jewish, but he lived in like a, a Muslim uh, milieu in a Muslim environment. And so he wrote everything in Hebrew characters. So it was Arabic in Hebrew characters. And, um, you know, I had I'd had grown up knowing Hebrew, so right. I could read it, but it's extremely difficult. You have to figure out like what, arabic root he's trying to capture with the hebrew and so actually learning arabic was only like minimally helpful towards being able to read maimonides but yeah i mean you end up learning a decent Incredible. amount of languages i think to, to do it well
0: yeah so i'm I have a note here that that you i want to talk talk a little bit about what you what you do um i know you teach at goucher and you were sp- specializing but some of the these the areas are ethics politics art and religion which are some some pretty big areas um you told me before we started recording that you were teaching the philosophy of humor tell me about that that yeah, sounds so, that sounds so sure. interesting
1: so i've i've taught um i've taught philosophy of humor for for a while now so i i taught at hamilton college um a few jobs before this job at Goucher College. And that's where I first sort of introduced the class. And it was very popular. And I've taught it, um, I've taught some version of it. It's have taught philosophy of humor. And then sometimes I've taught just like Jewish humor, where we just focus on you know, Jewish humor exclusively. But um, it's a class that's sort of evolved over the years. And I'm actually teaching it again this semester. And uh, I was just talking with, with a colleague about this. But this, this semester has been really weird because I, I do a unit um, so philosophy of humor, I think, is really interesting because humor is a universal phenomenon, right? You could be, you could be a white supremacist, you, know, you could be a Jew, you could be everything right. in between, you know, and, and you're going to find certain things funny. So it's really a universal phenomenon. I mean, you could be you know, a Cold Stone killer and you'll still find certain things humorous. And um, so it's a universal phenomenon that you can use to think about uh, almost all of the big issues in philosophy. So you can think about, you know, how do we know things like what we call epistemology? So how do we know that something's funny, for example? How do we know um, that it might be insulting to someone or not insulting? And then that takes you to uh, you know, the ethics of humor. So why are certain jokes insulting? Can your sense of humor be wrong? Obviously, then that leads towards sort of political avenues. Um, humor can have political effects, right? It can be satirical. Uh, nowadays, like our politicians use humor a lot of times. Um, and then uh, you can also even just think about you know, what are jokes exactly? Like what, what makes up a joke? So you can think about yep. what philosophers are called metaphysics. Like what is something exactly. And so you can, I almost use it as an introduction to philosophy essentially, but yeah. No, what does it say? It's one unit that I always do. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dean.
0: No, I just think it's fascinating. It's a way in for you to teach all of these larger concepts of philosophy. I, I love it.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And it's, uh, you know, we increasingly sort of have to do this because I think, um, It's not the case anymore that everybody comes in with like a classical education where they're necessarily interested in, you know, subjects like philosophy. And so sometimes you sort of have to help them along to realize this is something they might be interested in. Um, But I think what's what I always do is I always do a unit on offensive humor, because usually that's Mm -hmm. the thing that students are most fascinated about. Um, But this semester, it's like my students have had like no interest in this unit at all. And it's almost Uh as if... uh, I was trying to figure out exactly why. And I think part of it is, part of it is, <laughs> I think they don't like to, to find irony in something you have to have a commitment to like the ideal that's being ironized. Right. And so I sort of feel like they don't, they don't care about any mm-hmm. of these norms that um, would get mocked in humor. And so, or, or maybe they don't realize them as humorous or whatever the case may be, but it's also like mm-hmm. our political discourse has gotten yeah. so poor, but it's like maybe, everything's getting an up insult in a- to them.
0: Maybe they're growing up in a world there 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 aren't any norms anymore. I don't
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's but it's just it's been shocking because uh, you know we we did like I did like a week and it was like pulling teeth, whereas right? usually it's like they're chomping at the bits to talk about this stuff. And so then I'm like, well, do you guys want to keep doing offensive humor? I mean, I, you know, I can talk about lots of different things about humor, so we don't have to. Spend time in this unit, but you know, you all don't seem to be very into it. And they're like, "Yeah, we don't, we don't think offensive humor is funny." Well,
0: well, who are some of the offensive comedians, for example?
1: That I mean, you- we did a range. So, you know, my students. These are I teach it as a first year seminar, so it means that it's all first year students. So they're young. I mean, they mm-hmm. haven't heard of, for example, Dave Chappelle, and so we we did some wow. Chappelle with them.
0: That makes me
1: feel um, they, very old. But yeah, it's pretty wild, but it's amazing because Chappelle. They, they didn't they didn't find him particularly humorous but they respected what he was doing so i showed him like the um i showed him the skit about the the black white supremacist
2: mm-hmm. and yep
1: they were just like we watched it and then they were just silent they were like wow i, I don't know i don't know what we just watched <laughs> um and then i showed him sarah silverman which was interesting um And so things like that. I mean, we we went back to George Carlin. We had done a little Lenny Bruce. So we sort of we do the gamut of offensive humor, but a lot of a lot of stand up. I think um, that's sort of where I try to start.
0: I am suddenly uh, suddenly saddened by what our youth has become. They don't like (laughs) Sarah Silverman or Dave Chappelle. What are they what are they laughing at then?
1: Well, it's interesting. It, it, a lot of it is like memes and TikTok. Oh, um,
2: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I had no idea that like uh, memes were, you know, my exposure to memes is like on Facebook and maybe Instagram, but their their like sort of collection and like archive of memes is huge. I mean, they're like yeah. on Reddit and the, the memes that they, there's like apparently different genres of memes and that, you know, there's like different ways to do particular things and memes. I mean, I had no idea until they started sort of introducing me to it. So that was sort of fascinating. Sometimes I learned things from them, but, um, uh, yeah, so there's, there's like a, a great range of different types of memes that, uh, that are out there that they all seem to find fascinating, but mostly it's, I think, TikTok for
2: that.
0: Yeah. Well, my, my kids are doing that. And now that I think about it, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Cause I showed my, 11-year-old, the, um, you know, Matt Foley skit on SNL, Chris Farley living in a van down by the river, anyone who grew up in the 90s, you know, I still think this is one of the funniest things SNL or Farley's ever done. You know what I'm talking about, right? Right. Um, And uh, my wife and I are cracking up and they're they're like, "Ah," you know, they're like chuckling, but it's just shocked me that they, I don't know what it is or why it's not as funny to them, but yeah, you're right. It's, there's something about TikTok that is a lot more appealing than these sort of classic comedy, which, um, it makes me feel old. Um, but that's okay. Cause you have, you told me a five-year-old and a six-year-old. Right. right. Okay. So,
1: yeah. And I think, I mean, it's, it's normal for humor to change. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and I think what's interesting is that they can dip into the things that we like. So um, we ended up, uh, I ended up watching the new Borat movie with my class and they actually oh, thought cool. it was really hilarious. Oh, they so, but it. only after I explained it to them that, that, because at first I think they thought the whole thing was staged. And then once, um, once they realized that he was interviewing like actual famous people, you know, they, they made me pause and they were like, well, wait a second. Like, uh, you know, is he a, uh, you know is this set up or and i'm like no like you know some of it's scripted but some of it is spontaneous like he's just interviewing people and they're like
0: oh so so you sort of had to explain to them that like the audience is in on the joke and the the person like giuliani or the audience when he's in that band and in, in the rally they, they didn't they they thought they weren't they weren't 100 sure that they were in no the like joke. so wow. uh
1: i started by um before we watched the new one we watched um uh, we watched the one where he he's performs in a bar in Arizona and sings Throw the Jew Down the Well. Yep,
2: yep. And
1: they were just like, what's the big deal? I mean, so he wrote this like lame song and and uh, you know and, and they got these actors at the bar. And I was like, well, no, they're not actors. They're real people. And they're like, what?
0: <laughs> well, I, I know this is a really super basic question, but how would you even define, like if someone says, what, what even is philosophy? A, that's question number one, what is it? And why do you think it's important, which I know is a huge question, but it, like if you're, you had two minutes in an elevator, what, is, you know, what, would, what would you say?
1: Well, I think the, the first question is much easier to answer than the second one, but, but I can mm-hmm. give you an answer for both. I mean. You know, literally, philosophy is the love of wisdom. So it's a it's a Greek word. right? It, it originates with the Greeks, and, and there's a lot of debate about philosophy. So some people are sort of purists about this. They say, look, philosophy is only a Greek thing. Um, and then other people say, no, look, philosophy is obviously much much broader than that, and other cultures have philosophy. It's not just a Greek thing. Um, but I think that the idea of it being a love of wisdom, I think, is interesting. It's not the definition that I actually favor. So I'll tell you the one that I favor yeah. in a sec. But I do wanna say a little more about just the love of wisdom because I think it's fascinating. Um, and this is something I always propose to students. I think it's very fascinating to have an academic discipline that starts essentially in an emotion. I mean, it's, it's a love of wisdom. It's not you know knowledge of wisdom, it's not study of wisdom, but it's really a love. So there's this emotional component to it. And I'll come back to that in a second. And then wisdom I think is, is this interesting thing that we don't talk about much as a culture. We talk about facts, we talk about you know being smart or intelligent. Um, but wisdom really is a sort of practical knowledge for the Greeks, mm-hmm. meaning that it affects how you live. Uh, you know, so Socrates, one of the earliest philosophers, he summarized the whole thing as philosophy is essentially learning how to die. And what he meant by that is it's not like, you know, you figure out how you're going to die and commit suicide. It was learning how to die, meaning you figure out the fact that we're finite at some point, you know, we're not yeah. going to be here and you have some space in between. And What are you going to do with that exactly? And I think uh, a a definition of philosophy that I really like comes from a a guy named Stanley Cavell, who was a a philosopher at Harvard that passed away maybe a few years ago. And he basically said that, look, philosophy, he had two two definitions of it. He said, one, it's the education of grownups. And two, he said, it's basically being awake when everyone else is asleep. And the two he thought were essentially the same and related to each other. And what he meant was that when he says it's the education of grownups, we we go through life and we do a whole bunch of things, right? I mean, especially when, when you're a teenager or you first start college, I mean, you decide, I mean, the fact that you even go to college, well, why do you go to college? It's like, oh, it's to get a job or whatever. Um, so many of the things we do, we just do because people have been telling us that we ought to do them. And I think philosophy allows you to take a sort of step back and have some sort of self-reflexive relationship with that. Meaning that you can figure out why you're doing these things and also whether you ought to be doing them. And I think that's just really important just as a human being. Um, And I think having a love of that, I think enriches your life. And so, you know, when I sell the major to students, I don't even, a lot of my colleagues will say, oh, look, like philosophers score high on like all graduate school entrance exams or what I was sort of telling you before we started the interview, which is like over the course of a lifetime, they have very high earnings. But I think all of that to me is irrelevant. Uh, I think the reason that people should be interested in philosophy is the fact that not everything in life is a problem. And what I mean by that, it's, um, you know, somebody close to you dies or you're struck by the fact that you're going to die. That's not a problem that you can solve. That's just a, a condition that you figure out how to deal with or you don't. And oftentimes I think we don't, but I think our lives can be much richer if we do figure out how to deal with it. And so that is how I would sort of highlight the benefits, you know, if any, of philosophy
2: well, that um, is, is that good. I
1: think it, it enriches your life in a qualitative way rather than, you know, is some instrumental towards something else. It's its own sort of end.
0: That's an absolutely beautiful answer. And <laughs> it, no, it is. And it makes me, you know, my kids are of the age when they ask me these questions. And these are questions, the thing that I will add to it is that science, although we love science and it can tell us so much, and so important, it cannot answer everything. And so I feel like that's where philosophy can, can help us to answer things that science cannot or to teach us how to live. So. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there was, a, there was a very notorious philosopher named Martin Heidegger.
1: The reason he was notorious is he's a of member course. of the Nazi party. And, um, but he, you know, he was a sharp, sharp thinker. And one of the things that he says is science doesn't think. Mm -hmm. And what he means by that is not that scientists are like foolish or they're not smart, but in that science doesn't think in the sense that it doesn't tell you what you ought to do. Right. So Oppenheimer can figure out, you know, how to produce a bomb, but that's not going to tell you whether you ought to use the bomb on the Japanese twice, let's say, or once or whatever the case might be. Um, and so, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's, that's definitely true. I mean, what's interesting about philosophy is it can help you think through those normative questions, the questions of ought, you know, what ought you to do. And um, again, I think those questions, it's basically who is who is doing the thinking for you? It, if you don't reflect on those questions, you're still answering them. It's just somebody else, I yeah. think, is providing the answer for you.
0: How do you think, if at all, on a really practical level, it informs, let's say, how you parent or how you are in your marriage? Do you, is it is it separate? Like you're an academic philosopher um, in a vacuum, or do you think it really kind of bleeds into your your life? I would imagine it's the latter, but I don't know.
1: Um, I think being a philosopher certainly bleeds into my life. I think being an academic philosopher is probably something a little bit different, and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll say a little more about that in a sec. But um, yeah, no, I think I think being a philosopher is sort of at the at the core of who I am. So, you know, I can't really answer whether it's good or bad for my marriage. I guess have to ask my partner, but but certainly I think uh, you know (laughs) uh certainly whenever you know we have discussions or something, I'm very big on giving and taking reasons. And so I think the way that we interact is very much influenced by me being a philosopher, whereas she knows that, you know, if she's gonna argue for something then she's gonna have to give me some sort of reason. And, uh, and, and, you know, I might have my own reasons and we'll discuss them. Um, but I, I like to think that that makes me reasonable in the sense that I'm liable to change my mind if somebody, you know, gives me a better reason than, than what I had. Um, and certainly with kids, I think it's, it's even more obvious. Like I, I think of kids as natural philosophers because their inclination is to ask why for everything. And the trouble actually is, is sort of toning down my, my philosophy a little bit, um, because mm-hmm. i am liable to indulge it in ways that i think my partner does not and um and i'm happy to have all of these discussions with them all the time but you you can't do it because sometimes you're like you know you need to cross the street then you need to look both ways you need to hold my hand as we right. do it uh, and you, you can't get into the why at the moment um but i think uh kids are just fantastic because they're natural philosophers and so uh are so much fun to have around and it's really. Um, It really has affected the way i see philosophy too because what's interesting is uh this figure of like the child is is a figure that appears in philosophy a lot of times so Uh especially if you there's a subset of philosophy called philosophy of language where what they try to do essentially is to think about you know why we say things how we say things and use that as a key towards working out philosophical problems Uh, and so um, you know, you might say, okay, we ask all of these questions about survival after death or about what's out there. And really sometimes what we do is we misuse our words. So we, we ask questions that don't actually make sense if you really analyze them. Yeah. And what a lot of these, uh, philosophers of language, they'll write about children. Um, but after having children, you realize that these folks must've never met kids in their life because the way they write about them, is so far from what actually happens when you have kids. And so that's been, I think, fascinating.
0: Well, and that's why I like because you mentioned um, Cavell. He's was he one of your kind of influences? I read, I think, Mm -hmm. um, where he tried to make it. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. A little bit more accessible to the public, and you as well. Teaching classes, I think you you wrote a book on you know new media or new television. You know where you talk about Mm -hmm. the Sopranos and the Wire, and I love. That um, you're making it I know it's an academic book, but you're making it a lot more um, accessible, and I think is Yeah, that, no, very is much
1: that, so and uh, yeah. yeah, I think uh, I think you're, you're actually right on all counts, so yeah, Cavell, I think the reason I was attracted to him was uh, Cavell was a you know he was a, a traditional sort of like Anglophone philosopher, so he wrote about things like philosophy of language and epistemology. But then he he would also he would write a book on Shakespeare he would write a book on uh, Hollywood cinema, and so he's one of the first sort of Anglophone philosophers that took this stuff seriously like popular culture in this way, and um and I think he did that because he had certain ideas and commitments, um towards you know thinking about philosophy in a particular way, and um and those are commitments that I share I think uh, I think philosophy. I think the, the world raises philosophical sort of issues and questions for us inherently. And uh, you mentioned like the book I wrote on new television. I mean, the reason I wrote it is I, I found myself watching all of these shows. Yeah. Like I would say religiously, like I, I was really serious about them. They became right. really important to me. Yeah, I love um, it. You You're know. like, why
0: am I obsessed and with the Sopranos? <laughs> exactly.
1: No, that's, that's literally exactly why I wrote this book. is I wanted to try to figure out why it is that, that, you know, somehow I, I have this interest in these shows. I mean, what is, what is so interesting about them exactly? And, Uh um, and I feel like that's, that's been the case with, with almost all of my work is uh, I feel like um, this is where I say, like, again, I feel like extremely lucky that I get, I get paid essentially to think about things that I would probably think about anyway. So it's yeah, it's remarkable.
0: That's wonderful. I mean, the things, and again, total layman, but the things that as a, yeah, I'm a lawyer. I'm, I've am i always been into psychology and have a degree in psychology, but I also got a certification as a coach. But the thing I always grab onto philosophically is like the existentialists and I'm probably vastly simplifying them, but this sort of that we make our own meaning, right? I always have the, like that, that um, life is a blank palette and, you know, it's our job to paint it. And I've always sort of grabbed on to that. I mean, is that, is that, quasi-accurate kind of, you know, what what an existentialist would even say or think?
2: That we uh, we are the meaning makers?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot, lot more built into that because I think to really take that thought seriously, you also have another component where meaning has somehow had to have broken down for you to even have this possibility. Oh, yeah, there you go. So think about, I mean, you know, thousands of years ago, nobody was walking around making meaning, um, unless you were the king or, you know, somebody right. in a position of power. So the fact that, you know, any individual can in theory do that now, um, or at least great swaths of individuals. I mean, I, I think there are unfortunately still many, many oppressed people that, that right. Philosophy is an extreme luxury for them. But, um, but the fact that philosophy has become so much more democratized in this way. Um, so yeah, so I think there has to be a certain breakdown of norms, um, the philosophers will call uh, Nietzsche calls this a nihilism meaning like our values begin to wane um, so you have that also I think and then yeah I think existentialism is sort of like that um, but I think psychoanalysis I mean you mentioned psychology uh, a philosopher or a thinker that I'm also extremely fascinated by I think it's Freud regardless of what you think about him clinically I think as a thinker he's very interested in part of the way that psychoanalysis works is it tells you essentially that it's interpretation. So, um, you know, you're uncovering things that exist in your unconscious, but the success of it very much depends on your interpretive capacities and what sort of interpretation you can offer possibly, you know, with the help of a, of an analyst. And so we're back to this sort of normative dimension of how you ought to understand what's going on in your life and the sort of desires that you have or don't realize that you have, or wish that you had, or whatever the case might be.
0: Yeah, now you bring up a very good point. I, I do feel privileged, and it's a luxury, right, to even have this conversation and to think about these things and, and, and to read these books, because I, I'm sure there are still, unfortunately, lots of people in the world who, yeah, I'm not worried about meaning. I'm worried about paying my rent, having food on the table. So it's very Maslow's hierarchy. We're sort of way, way up the scale, I guess, of not, uh, thankfully not worrying about our basic needs, but more focused on um, on meaning. So, yeah, no, you bring up uh, an important point. Not everybody has the luxury. So.
1: No, absolutely. And this is actually something that's haunted, I think, philosophy from its very beginning. I mean, um, you know, philosophy starts, at least in the Western tradition, with, with the Greeks and I mean, the Greeks were notoriously a slave culture. So the only way that you could have philosophy is by having, you know, a whole subset of individuals that were essentially slaves that provided for all the basic needs. So these guys could yeah. hang around and philosophize. And, um, and, you know, Aristotle essentially will say that, look, look, you need leisure to have philosophy and you need slaves to have leisure. And later on, you know, centuries down the line, Hegel, who, who's a German philosopher and You know, 19th century will say essentially the same thing that, you know, to have philosophy, you essentially need to have leisure. And then if you start thinking about what it is that um, you need to have in place to have leisure, uh, you know, the philosopher that comes right after Hegel is Marx. And Marx is seriously thinking about this question. And Marx basically says, look, this is the problem with philosophy is that it's basically just thought about the world, whereas what we have to do is change it. And why do we have to change it? Well, it's because so few people have the leisure that Hegel's talking about.
0: Well, I don't know if you pay attention to these things, but in a lot of, let's say, the podcasts I listen to, or sort of the pop psychology, philosophy kind of things, that Stoicism is really big right now. Have you noticed that? Like a lot. Yeah, of I have noticed come out. that. I mean, it's really uh, interesting.
1: It started with, uh, I mean, as far as I know, you know, I only dip into all this stuff, but. I mean, it started, I don't know if you remember Marco Rubio, um, who, mm-hmm. you know, said, we, we, we don't need more philosophers, we need more welders. Um, mm. And then, uh, and then he, he took this back, like, a, a year later. He said, no, no, I was wrong about philosophy, because people started tweeting at him, and people were pointing out the stuff that I was talking about, that philosophers actually make plenty of money and whatever else. And then, uh, and then apparently, he started reading, like, uh, Stoicism, I think he's reading Marcus Aurelius or something. <laughs> and, uh,
2: no, and I he said, no, I,
1: I was wrong. Like uh, <laughs> philosophers uh, know exactly uh, philosophy is important and they know what's going on. And like, yeah, everybody should read Marcus Aurelius. Um, so yeah, I, I find this, um, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, obviously, like I want people to read more philosophy. And I think, I think Marcus Aurelius is, is super interesting. Yeah. Um, but I think Stoicism as a philosophy is also fascinating because it tends to be a quietistic philosophy. And what I mean by that is, I mean, you, you sort of go with the flow, right? I mean, that's the point of Stoicism is mm-hmm. whatever comes your way, you're prepared for it. And the whole point is there's a very famous uh, French philosopher named Pierre Hadot. He called it an inner citadel. and What he meant by that is you have this sort of mental life that you've trained that can absorb anything. So no matter, you know, the world could turn into a giant Auschwitz tomorrow and the Stoic philosopher mm-hmm. would be prepared for it.
0: Well, because it's neither good nor mentally. it's bad, you know.
1: <laughs> right. And it's uh, on one hand, like a, I think the, the sort of, the virtue of training yourself that way, I think is impressive and I have respect for, but the apolitical element of it, I find very problematic. And, um, and I think that worries me about it being so popular is the fact that it it, it leads towards this sort of cynicism towards politics.
0: Yeah, this, I see this sometimes in some of the new age stuff, like, well, this is, this is the expression of how it's supposed to be. And you have to accept it. And it's like, mm, I think we have to do something about it. I mean, this is causing it, whatever, you know, it is great pain and suffering in the world. Right. And I think maybe but you, know, you also I, get this yeah. in like, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got this in the sort of leftist
1: circles of, of mm-hmm. the folks who are like, well, you know, Biden and Trump are essentially the same. Right. And it's like, yes, yeah, so on one hand, like they both are, <laughs> you know, they're, they're both uh, sort of bought by moneyed interests oftentimes, but, you know, one of them, you can influence from the left, at least in a way that you can't the other, that seems to be an important difference. And so, so yeah, I think this, this sort of thing, like, uh, you know, stoicism, again, it's as a personal virtue, I'm all for it. But as a, as a philosophy for analyzing the world, I think it, it uh, it lacks nuance that, that we desperately need. Yeah,
0: yeah, like it might help you, you know, to your own subjective psychology, but if we, I see what you're saying. If we're all Stoics, you know, how, do we not have activists? Do we not have people who, you know?
1: Well, that's interesting because, uh, so this other, this uh, scholar that I mentioned, Pierre Hadeau, I mean, what he's most famous for, and I think he's right about this, is he, he essentially made this argument that uh, a lot of ancient philosophies, so things like Stoicism, but also Epicureanism and Plato and Aristotle, all these folks, it was not philosophy in the way that we think about it. It was philosophy conceived as, a, he calls it a spiritual exercise. And what mm-hmm. he means by that is, again, it's literally an exercise in the same way that, you know, I might go to the gym to exercise my muscles to get stronger. I undertake particular philosophical reflections to strengthen my mind. Mm-hmm. But uh, but it's a spiritual exercise. It's not meant to be a political philosophy necessarily that's a separate component yeah. um and so a, yeah i think a, it's a mental Buddhism as a sort of right exactly and i mean i think you read marcus aurelius it's very clear that that's what he's doing i mean their meditation like he means it literally
0: yeah there's um this is a, a psychologist i like quite a bit um but he's also a buddhist and um as a practitioner of psychology as a therapist he says well you know like buddhism is, is great for the present here and now, the acceptance of reality, what is, maybe there's not an answer, but it's incomplete. And also the Western part of trying to fix everything is incomplete. So he, So he uses them both. Yes, we start from a place of acceptance. This is where we are, this is what it is. And then also the Western part of now let's optimize or make it better. Not a philosopher, but I love both components.
2: Well, and it's a, I mean,
0: uh, awesome. right. So
1: this is a, the, a philosopher that I mentioned earlier, this, this guy named Hegel, who's yep. been also a big influence on, on a lot of the German philosophers that I work on. Um,
0: I've heard of that uh, guy.
1: <laughs> right. So there's, a, there's also uh, there's a school of philosophy that starts in the 20th century, sort of largely. Um, it starts before the Nazi genocide, but it's most famous as a, a group of folks who essentially was responding to the Nazi genocide called the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. And um, what all of these folks are are sort of doing is what we now call dialectical philosophy. That's just a fancy way of saying that you're trying to keep two perspectives in mind and moving between them as necessary. And that's really, they think, the only way to properly do philosophy is to dialectically Mm -hmm. move from one position to the other, um, as opposed to trying to just do one or the other because you're,
0: you're liable to fail. To hold them both. Yeah. What... um. Do you like like if you were to recommend, let's say, resources or any books to a non-academic who wanted to, you know, get a kind of a feel for some of the major principles um, that can apply? I mean, it's, you know, philosophy is you know vast, but sort of uh, what any like sort of uh, layman kind of books that you think are really helpful to to someone who's a non-academic that might want to learn more or use it to and to optimize Um, or enhance right uh yes i mean i I could i could give a Uh lot of different recommendations i mean it sort of depends what folks
1: are interested in but uh my suggestion would be actually for people to um there's there's a woman named bell hooks i don't know if you've you've ever heard of her but um she's a contemporary scholar and Uh um i think you could just I mean, she has lots of videos on YouTube. Um, You can pick up some of her essays. Uh, I don't think she's a philosopher per se, but I think you can get a good sense of how one might use philosophy um, for reading her. And she writes in a very sort of plain style. So I mean, Bell Hooks would be a great person to start (laughs) with. Um, I think uh, there's a philosopher named Richard Rorty um, that also wrote in a very accessible style and wrote a lot of sort of um, more popular philosophy. I think you could also go back to just reading, uh, there's a sequence that's very famous in philosophy that's about the trial and death of Socrates. So if you read uh, Plato's dialogue called The Apology, which is, uh, it's not not an apology in the sense that we mean it now, like, I'm sorry, it's an apology in the sense that it's Socrates' justification for his life. And so, um, I mean, you may know this or or you may not, and same with your listeners, but Socrates is very famously killed by the Athenians, essentially for being a philosopher. And um, and so they, he's first put on trial before he's sentenced to death. And there's a sequence of dialogues that Plato writes. Um, so that culminates in the apology where Socrates sort of defends himself. And that's where he very famously says, look, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and so that, I think, is also an interesting place to start. Um, I think people that are know religious i think if if you look at the book of ecclesiastes um which is
2: in the hebrew
1: bible it's in the catholic bible i mean that's also a very fascinating book um there's a woman named martha nussbaum
0: yeah who's written no, yeah it's just a uh, whole on a whole nother genre that i know you work in is is judaism and the philosophy of it which um that's that's amazing and and uh, genocide and you you do a lot sir i Um, try to i mean uh there's a well, actually, uh, another, another great
1: introduction to philosophy is a, is a book by a, a guy named Bertrand Russell, who was sort of one of the oh, yeah. the, big, the biggest sort of philosopher in the world at the, at the turn of the 20th century, I think. And, um, and he writes a, a very short little book called The Problems of Philosophy. Um, but he has like another book that I can't remember the name of where he essentially says like, look, you're, you're going to be much more happy in life if you have more interests. Uh-huh. Because as you get bored of one thing, you can turn to something else. And I was very convinced by it when I read it. Um, now that I have a whole bunch of interests, I'm actually not sure that it's true because I think it, it also increases your stress. But I've also ended yeah. up with a whole bunch of interests already. And, uh, and that's sort of how it operates. So I'll, I'll work on one thing and then I, I get really, you know, you get right. tired of it. And, and then I just turn to the next thing.
0: Well, and especially then, in I've
1: tried to stay productive
0: especially in 2020 where everything's at your fingertip, YouTube, any book, any talk, any, anything, you get restless. It's the next bright, shiny thing and sort of fear of missing out. And at least this is me talking, I don't know about you. And I'm just like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I'll, I'll start reading something and that's interesting. And then I'll go into the next, it's, it's too much. There's so much. So I, I can imagine that there's a stress of choice, especially for someone like you, who's got this very active mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, I mean, you know, I feel like humans are sort of miserable creatures in this way, like, uh, you know, my very first book was, you know, very dense German philosophy. And so I would sit there for hours, like, reading and translating very dense German philosophy. And after I finished it, I said, oh, I, I never want to do this again. That was horrendous. And, mm-hmm. you know, my next book was going to be on TV. And it was great. You know, I would sit around and watch TV and literally, I mean, I would watch like everything because I was just doing research. Yeah, um, yeah, right. But then you start working on that. And it's actually really hard to write on TV because like like yeah. I I wrote a chapter in The Wire, for example, The Wire is 40 hours long. I had to sit there and take notes and every single episode, keep all 40 hours yeah. in mind. <laughs> right. Exactly. And uh and so I'm writing that book and I'm finishing it up and I'm like, man, I can't wait to get back to, you know, dense German philosophy. That was such mm-hmm. a pleasure compared to this. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's just sort of natural to, to sort of dive into something and then at least for me to want to wanna move on to something else, but also be able to deal with it in some depth. I think, uh, I think the, the worry is always being a sort of dilettante where you don't seriously deal with any particular topic and so yeah that i think is the biggest challenge when you have a lot of
0: interest dig a 100 wells never get get to water um right. yeah no it's like i used to I, I mean i still love podcasts but i used to like them a lot more because because now that when now that i have one i listen to them and i'm not like actually i'm like well, how does this guy do the interview like, what, Wait, what does the theme where does he do the theme music and it's like, <laughs> it's not as fun right you start analyze it well, it 's the same
1: way uh, with yeah. film. I mean, as soon as I start writing about philosophy of film i can't can 't watch films without doing <laughs> that sort of thing and yeah and um yeah. and I think that 's the one disadvantage to to I think studying philosophy is it can enrich your life, but oftentimes it can also destroy your pleasure in some mm-hmm. of these simple things um, like a, a philosopher that I like very much, a German philosopher named Wittgenstein um, yeah. he said so. He said that the goal of philosophy is to let the fly out of the fly bottle. And what he meant by that is essentially the goal of philosophy is to get to the point where you don't have to do philosophy. Um, oh, so he wow. viewed it almost as like a sort of sickness um, where, you know, oh, that's you want to answer these odd questions. Yeah. And then, but it, it doesn't necessarily make you better in the short term.
0: Oh, gosh. So, um, you were, you know, is there anything else important that we should, that you want to say before we end? Um, like, what's, like, what's the secret to life? Like, that's kind of all I want. I'm just Um, kidding. Like.
1: I mean, I actually think that the, you know, not, not to get too philosophical or (laughs) or too arrogant, but, um, but I think we we could all benefit from, from two secrets. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, one is I think people could just be a lot nicer to each other. Um, so I, I think, uh, And I think a lot of that could follow from us just pausing a little bit and thinking about the sort of broader structures that we're all embedded in. So, you know, we all rush to jobs and we all, you know, um, I think there's just like a whole system that stands behind our entire world that oftentimes we don't examine. And I think um, one of the other things that we didn't talk about much, but that I think is also central to philosophy is. Um, We talked a little bit about this, I guess, when we brought up spiritual exercise, but um, what philosophy, I think, can do and what I think also great literature can do and and great films and um, all sorts of great human productions is I think they Mm -hmm. can train your imagination in a particular way. And so, to me, I think Mm -hmm. the most important sort of human uh, asset that we can develop are imaginative capacities. And they're also the things that most easily get warped in the sort of systemic structure that we have built for ourselves. And so, I mean, you hear, I mean, just look at the political debates that we have, I mean, where, you know, by my life, you know, someone like Bernie Sanders is not a particularly radical candidate, I would say. Um, Mm -hmm. But in sort of American discourse, you know, he's about as far left as you can get. And- um, Right, and right, in other other countries, he's
0: he's just normal. (laughs)
1: Right. He would he would be, you know, centrist or center right candidate. And all he's saying is basically that he wants, you know, he yeah. wants free education right. and free healthcare. care. Right. Um, those are not radical ideas. I mean, uh, no. I think we could imagine way more radical ideas than that. But I think people are loath to do that because they feel like they're somehow impossible. But the thing is, everything is humanly made. I mean, there's there's nothing here that sort of dropped from the sky. It's we stand behind all of these institutions. These are things that we have created. And so they could be different. They're completely contingent. And I think in a way, like to me, like that's the most important skill that I think philosophy can help you develop, but it's not just philosophy's purview. I mean, lots of things can do that. I think philosophy is just the most explicit and reflective about it in many ways, but it's really to develop our imaginative capacities and to, and to then try to build a world that's different that, you know, reduces the amount of suffering that we have, um, and so, that, I guess that, that would be the one thing that I would want your, your listeners to sort of take away from all of this is to try to uh, think about things differently.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I so appreciate you saying that. And I appreciate, I, you know, we're friends on Facebook, and some of the things that you post are lovely and the voice of reason and intelligent and insightful. So, I, by the way, I'm just really appreciating some of the things that you post about our discourse about our politics about what's going on your analysis it's wonderful to read so thanks well, thank man you. you you don't realize it but you're making an impact I'm like wow that's it's really great some of the things that you're saying um i well, appreciate it thank you so great well i i appreciate you i know i want you to get back to your your wife and your children it's been a long day and really thanks and um this has been such a treat for me how and and hopefully people will get a lot out of it because um you know unless you're in college and taking a philosophy class i don't think people have a lot of you know um interaction with someone l- like you who's actually doing philosophy for a living so thanks for that yeah unfortunately not yeah man you're the real deal <laughs> so i well, appreciate it, it was, yeah
1: uh, it was lovely to, to chat with you
0: yeah have a great night and thanks and um yeah so we'll you know we'll put some of your um information in the show notes who knows maybe somebody wants to read some academic books about new televisions and some of the things you write about why not it's in english it's not in german it's in english right
1: yeah no the tv book i think is very readable Um, oh
0: good cool and it's about the sopranos the wire breaking bad maybe some other things uh, yeah, I mean it's about all of that stuff. Um,
1: I, the, the shows that I focus on are, are The Wire, Justified, and Weeds. Um, so those are the three okay. that I look at most closely. But uh, but I talk about all the shows that you mentioned. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if anyone out there is obsessed with those shows and you want to know kind of why, there you go. <laughs> yep. All right, man. Have a great night.
1: Sorry, right, you too, my friend. Take, Take care. care.
0: See you. And there it is, my conversation with Dr. Martin Schuster. It got a little heady there, and I always enjoy that. It was so good to reconnect with you, and thank you very much. I guess we probably haven't spoken since middle school. Fascinating guy. Uh, again, please consider doing the five-star review. It really helps. It really helps other people find this and see this. There's you know a gajillion um, podcasts out there. I hope you all are having a sweet new year so far, and wherever you are, you're safe and well and healthy. And see you soon.